This is Cover to Cover, a podcast brought to you by the Santa Barbara Public Library. I'm Kim Crail, branch manager at the Montecito Public Library. And I'm Jace Turner, community relations librarian at the Central Library. We love hearing from our listeners, and we're delighted when they want to be a guest on our show. We found Sarah Power's email to us so engaging that we figured we'd just use it for her intro. It captures Sarah's lively spirit, her personal story, and the topic of this episode of Cover to Cover, which we're calling Leaning in to Chaos, Moving to Santa Barbara During COVID. So hey, here we go. Here's Sarah's original email that she sent us back in August. Greetings Cover to Cover. I was delighted to find the SBPL podcast recently because I think locally driven podcasts are so helpful and important, and unfortunately they're rare. I wanted to reach out to say hello as a fellow podcaster. I make a full-time living as a professional indie podcaster and podcast producer, something I've been doing since early 2015, an eon in podcast time. I co-host a top 10 parenting podcast called The Mom Hour. My Santa Barbara story has a few twists and turns. I grew up here, not born, but raised, moved to town at age five, and left for college out of state at 18. Other than two summers home in college, I never again lived locally or even close by until this summer. On May 29th of this year, mid-COVID, we made a quick decision to uproot our lives in Orange County and move back home to SB. Because of the challenges and opportunities presented by the pandemic, I'm now living five minutes away from my parents in the same part of town I grew up in. My kids are even attending the elementary school that I went to. It happened fast, and it all happened because of COVID. I'd love to come on the show to discuss what it's like to return to your hometown as a 40-year-old with school-aged kids after 20-plus years away, why people feel called or pressured to make big moves during this crazy time, and what it's like to reestablish community when people are social distancing. I'm also happy to discuss broader parenting topics, since that's my work professionally. How moms are coping as school starts back again, the parenting questions families are struggling with as the pandemic wears on, etc. So from her email, you can see why we wanted to have Sarah on as a guest. Her story is super timely and unique. How our current pandemic situation can lead to families changing course, making the big leap of moving to town. So with that, let's meet Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. We were so excited to get ready to meet you when you reached out to us about coming on the podcast. And we really enjoyed listening to your Mom Hour podcast and just getting to know you through our conversations and emails that we've exchanged. Just wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about how the Mom Hour came to be and how it all got started. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I guess like most people who work in podcasting probably didn't want to be a podcaster when they grew up because that was not a thing. (laughs) Um, But I knew I always wanted to be a writer when I grew up and I didn't know exactly what that would look like, but I studied English literature and I studied at Oxford for a while and I got a degree in English and I knew that words probably would likely, you know, figure into my someday career. Um, And I worked as a corporate writer um, for a mid-sized company, kind of ghostwriting articles for the CEO and working on strategic communication. So I have experience um, using words in the business realm. Um, And then when I had my second baby, I decided to take a break from the corporate world, stay home for a little while. And on that break, got um, into the world of parenting media, um, by which I mean, I answered a call for contributors at a local parenting website. And so I wrote 
for free about being a mom and having a baby. And I met other parenting writers and I started to get published in parenting magazines. Um, I connected with another writer named Megan Francis, who at that time had a very successful, what we used to call mommy blog. Nobody, I can tell you, um, I can speak for most female writers in the parenting sphere that nobody likes to be called a mommy blogger. So I'll save you from that, <laughs> that <laughs> from that awkwardness in the future. Um, but <laughs> at the time, that is what they were called. Um, Megan was living a, you know, earning a full-time living. She was a published author. She was also a magazine writer. I actually took an online class from her and she was very early into podcasting. So this is like to kind of orient you in time, I started freelance parenting writing in like 2010, 11, 12. Um, and she was already getting into podcasting by 2012. And so for reference, um, most of the world found out what podcasts were in like 2015 with um, Serial from This American Life and a few other things. And of course, there are those out there listening who've known about podcasts for 20 years. But for the most part, um, 2012 was very early. And um, Megan wanted to start a podcast. She saw a big opportunity for women and moms who are commuting to and from work or who are at home with little kids who are puttering around their kitchens. That's when she tells the story that that's how she listened to podcasts is when she was kind of cleaning up the kitchen or putting away lunches. And um, there just weren't a lot of podcasts geared toward moms and women. Um, on any topic, not just motherhood, but business or, you know, current events, uh, very male dominated sphere at that time. And so she was an early podcast adopter and kind of played around with a few different shows and a few different concepts. And um, we were working together on the writing side at the time. So we knew each other well, we knew we had a good rapport. Um, we have very different backgrounds in different parts of the country. And we started the Mom Hour together in very early 2015. So it was probably in concept in late 2014. I don't actually remember. But um, by March 2015, we launched the show and we have not looked back. So we publish um, seven or eight episodes a month. Uh, so we call it Weekly Plus. And um, our audience has just grown very organically. And it's mostly moms, busy moms of young kids who kind of are looking for reassurance. So that's turned into a full-time job. Uh, Megan and I also have a sister company called Life Listened, um, where we with other people who want to either start a podcast or grow their podcast or learn how to work with advertisers and monetize their podcast. And we speak around the country and we do um, a few other podcast industry related things um, under the banner of our sister company. Um, but the mom hour is, is, and has always been um, just pretty much just a podcast. That's our primary engine of our business. And um, yeah, it's, it's a full-time job now. I love the relationship with uh, that you have with Megan. I think she's just hearing it I've, from listening to some of the podcasts. She's so incredible and opinionated, and the two of you complement each other really well. So just wanted well, to thank you. Tell you that. Yeah, she's we have so a lot fun. Of fun. She yeah. is. She is a lot of fun. She's way more fun than I am. So that she brings <laughs> that to the. <laughs> she brings that to the table. She's, um, you know, she's creative and spontaneous and fun in all the ways that I am sort of disciplined and task oriented and detail oriented. And we, we have a lot of fun with that. And I think our listeners can benefit because, you know, we don't all come to motherhood with the same skill sets or the same personalities either. So I think it's important for people to see there's different ways to thrive and be successful in parenting. And it doesn't all look the same. That's one of the things that I actually really, really love about your program is that, you know, there's no judgment. It's just kind of people sharing their experiences and their perspective. And I think one of the questions that I have is, 
getting feedback from your listeners, how has that changed your idea of parenthood and um, over time especially? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, we all strive for empathy. And I think if we're forced to pause in the moment um, and kind of look at someone else's situation, most of us have that natural empathetic response. Like, gosh, wouldn't it be hard to be a single parent going through crisis, for example, or, oh my gosh, like imagine having triplets or whatever, fill in the blank. Um, and I think it's easy when you are parenting your own kids to be fairly focused on the stage that you're in. Um, what this job does for me is kind of keeps me reminded of every stage, the stage, the stages that are behind me. I have incredible empathy for, you know, new moms right now, pregnant moms, brand new moms who are unable to go out to like a mom's group to meet their first friends. Like I got to because of the pandemic and moms who are trying to homeschool or support virtual learning for kindergarten uh, kindergartners. So I, I am presented with those opportunities for empathy all the time, which I think it's a really, I think it's a really wonderful thing. And then looking ahead, Megan's kids are teenagers and even young adults. And so I've had a, like a, a view into that, um, you know, that, that I can look ahead and, and also empathize. I think, I think you can empathize with someone who's in a situation you've never been in just by seeing the in in what goes on it's, it's very easy to judge when we haven't been in some of those shoes so I would say that's the biggest way that it's impacted me um and that I hope we can kind of bring some of that to our community as well I think we should get into Santa Barbara stuff yeah here we, we are <laughs> let's do it that's that was my whole pitch to you guys totally. I, love, I love that I, I love, love that you guys have a podcast I just I have to compliment <laughs> the library and I told this to you before, you know, when we got to know each other offline, but um, I have lived in places that aren't making use of podcasting as a, as a form of media for getting in touch with the community and bringing stories to the community. So I just think you guys are ahead of the curve and um, doing such a great job. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a new kind of avenue for the public library, but we recognize that you know, for hundreds of years, we've been collecting stories and kind of shoving them in our building. And we thought, hey, what better way to kind of capture the moment than, um, you know, collecting people's stories uh, kind of in an audio format and, and recording them for posterity kind of that way. And so um, it's been exciting for us and we've learned a lot. Each show kind of changes as we go. But the fact that you have spent so much time in Santa Barbara. You grew up in Santa Barbara. Did. Coming back to Santa Barbara, especially during kind of right when COVID kind of hit, um, or I guess like around the end of May, it sounds like. I think that that's a pretty common story that we're hearing yeah. now is that people want to leave, you know, kind of this more urban area for a place where they can be outside and, and raise their family. I'm just hoping maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of that decision yeah. kind of process and then that the journey back to Santa Barbara and what that was like for you. Yeah. Um, well, you're right. It was the end of May when I had this kind of lightning bolt of an idea. Um, and I would like to think that we were a little ahead of the curve. Cause I think you're right. I think people are making big life decisions right now about, um, relocating about they're able to work or do school from home. Um, so I don't think we're alone, but I think we were maybe a tiny bit on, on the leading edge of that curve. And it was the very end of May and my kids were finishing up, their remote schooling in the spring, which any parent will tell you remote school in the spring was 
kind of a disaster probably for nearly every school everywhere. Um, and by no fault of teachers and administrators, it was just people, we were all making it up as we went along. Um, and I just kind of had this moment where I, I felt pretty confidently that this was not going to be wrapped up by say July 4th or Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, not that I'm clairvoyant. I just kind of had, I had this feeling that this was going to be a year, a year and a half, two years to until really truly back to normal. Um, and I, Oh, maybe that's an opportunity, um, to do something we would not have done if not for COVID. I mean, we enjoyed being about two and a half, three hours away from my family. My husband's <laughs> family is, um, mostly on the East coast and a little bit in the Chicago area. So we've, we've already established how we do that with long distance family, but my family was about two and a half, three hours away. And that worked great for long weekends and they could come down if the kids had a school play or something, but it's not exactly um, not, not like a quick trip. You, you still needed a long weekend and I had worked fine. Um, but with everyone doing school at home and everyone working remotely, um, I think it just opened up the possibility that we didn't have to live where we were living. My husband's job had some increased flexibility. My job's always been remote. My kids were finishing up at the time, first, fourth and sixth grades, which wouldn't have been grades. I would have pulled them out of, um, in non COVID times to just up and move. You're very established with your friends and your teachers and your school community by those grades. But I, I did feel that our school community had fallen apart by no fault of anyone at the school. We just, it, people weren't seeing each other. We weren't getting together with friends and, um, it's my hometown. And, you know, it had been something we'd very loosely talked about maybe someday living here, maybe when the kids were out of high school or maybe, you know, but really had never seriously talked about it for all the reasons I mentioned. It didn't seem practical. It didn't seem to fit with jobs in school um, and being, you know, being two and a half, three hours away had seemed good enough. Um, and so COVID changed all that. And we made a really quick decision. We worked with um, a realtor. We collaborated with my family creatively. We bought a house. We sold our house. We it became like the COVID summer 2020 project for the Powers family. And we're incredibly lucky that we have the support and flexibility to do that. I, I think it's really important to just to say out loud that not every family has is able to make those choices for a variety of reasons. And so we, we felt incredibly supported and incredibly lucky that the opportunities were there for us to do this move. But yeah, it was pretty crazy. We up and people just kept saying to us, I can't believe how fast you did this. But it's 2020, right? Like nothing's normal. And so I for think sure. that was what it was for us is if normal has going is going to be taken away from us, why don't we lean in and just create our own chaos in a way that lands us where we truly want to be for the long term? Um, so yeah, I don't even know if I answered your question, but it was it was pretty crazy and fast. You really did. And I actually just kind of want to say I love that phrase, like to lean in. That's something that I've been hearing um, more recently. And it's, it's kind of developed a whole new meaning, I think, for me during 2020, so I can really appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, it seems like even though it's only just two and a half hours away, it's still a major life transition um, with family. And then, of course, coming back to your hometown and yeah. seeing that it's yeah. changed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is very crazy, especially because it happened so fast. I don't think I had as much time to process what that would be like. And, and keep in mind, we've, we've always come up here to visit my parents. So we've spent a lot of time in Santa Barbara over the last, you know, since our kids have been little, um, my parents actually had moved away for a while, but they've been back now for seven or eight years. So, 
um, we're, we were already familiar. My husband and my kids were familiar with the town, but we were familiar as guests or tourists or whatever vacation. Um, and so to, to go so quickly from that to living here full time and then to layer on top of that, that it is the place where I grew up. I'm living, um, I lived in a few different houses as a kid, but I'm, I'm living probably a mile to two miles from most of them. Um, my elementary schoolers are attending the school that I attended as a kid People do leave Santa Barbara, but there's a lot of people who don't leave Santa Barbara or who come home because it is a magical place to live. Um, and if you can have a good job and, and get a house here, why would you leave? You know, so it is it is pretty crazy to um, just drive the streets that I grew up driving and to, you know, go by places that haven't changed at all. And then there, you know, there are places that have changed as well. But I think I notice more the things that have stayed the same. Um, and it's it's comforting and it's it's bizarre. It, it really is. It's just still kind of a trip for me, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up here and when you moved away, if you expected to come back, you know, what age you were when you left? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I was actually in kindergarten when my family moved to Santa Barbara. So I am not, I will say I'm not born, but I am raised because I was five. So, you know, my, my memory is, is here. I was born in Oregon and my parents came down for a job opportunity um, when I was in kindergarten um, and so I went through local public schools all the way through Santa Barbara High School. And in um, one of colleges, I was really interested in going far away. It seemed exciting to me. I had always been enamored of big cities and um, the East Coast. I didn't actually end up on the East Coast. I ended up in Chicago, but big cities and, and things east of here, shall we say. And so I was really driven academically and um, kind of created a path for myself and ended up at Northwestern outside Chicago. And I had no qualms about leaving. And I remember adults saying to me, don't you know it's cold there? And I remember thinking in this very like obstinate teenage way, like, why would you say that to someone who's excited to go out on their own and to totally take a brave agree. adventure? Like, yes, I know it's cold there. Like weather's not the only, like, yeah, I, I just, I just remember to... being, like a little judgy of these adults. Yeah. I mean, these were parent, parent age adults. And that was the first thing they'd say is, are you going to freeze? Do you have a coat? And I just remember being like, yeah, but that's not everything. I want, I want to try something different. So I, I hope I will never say that to a young person um, <laughs> who's embarking on an adventure. Um, so I was in, so I was 18 when I left to answer your question, Kim. Um, and I came back only for the typical college vacations. I was home, you know, for Christmas, I was home for a couple summers and, and had summer jobs after freshman and sophomore year, but just two summers. And after that, so from like age 20 on, I mean, it got fewer, farther between and shorter because I was working and maybe a long weekend here. Um, and then in 2006, my parents actually moved away for a while and we all lived in Arizona, uh, my family, which meant I didn't even have roots here anymore. So there was a period of six or so, six or eight years where I didn't even come here to visit my own family. And that was really, I've talked to other people about this phenomenon. If your parents leave the place where you've grown up, it's a very like kind of untethered feeling, even if so you're only, yeah, totally. even if you're only to that place 
twice a year. Um, and I remember I had a couple friends get married here in that, in that window, but that was it. I had no reason to stay. Um, and, and that was, that felt sad. Um, so good news. My parents, um, decided to retire back here. So they were gone, like I said, six or seven years, I think. Um, and that was a time where I really didn't come here very much at all. And then they moved back and they, they built a home and, um, we were in Orange County and that's kind of when we started to come a little more often again. So I guess, Kim, to answer your question, I left at 18 and didn't really look back. And I never thought that I do or don't want to live in Santa Barbara again. But I, I don't think I thought I would, honestly. I was, as a young person, I was drawn toward big cities um, and kind of my own, like, individual path. And then in those middle years, just didn't seem practical. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't ever think I would live here again. I don't think, unless that you were talking like a million years from now, like when I retire maybe or something. <laughs> I mean, this is such a beautiful place to raise kids. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't grow up here, but I am raising kids here and I just can't imagine picking up and leaving knowing how great it is. Yeah. Yeah. But you're dumb when you're 18. Like you don't. Right. right. Exactly. Well, wait, wait, wait. I mean, hold on a minute. So <laughs> I'm from Santa Barbara and, and, and I kind of feel like Santa Barbara is one of those places that is easy to leave and easy to return to. Easy to leave when you're young because you don't know what you have. You can't right. kind of take this for granted if you don't know otherwise. And so kind of the curse of growing up in this a place like Santa Barbara is that this is all you know. Exactly. You know, you have the mountains, you have the ocean, you know, you have all this freedom. Yeah. Um, but it's also like you were saying earlier, Sarah, it's like at an eight, an 18 year old doesn't want to live someplace just because of the weather, you right. know? Um, and so I had to leave a couple of times to kind of really appreciate what Santa Barbara does have to offer. And it's that perspective that I think makes Santa Barbara kind of financial kind of situation aside, mm -hmm. uh, easy yeah. to come back to. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally get that. I totally agree with that, Jace. And it's, um, I think I am a very practical planner type of personality. So there's probably a period of the last 10 years or so where it just didn't seem like a thing that we could do. And, and so I, I thank COVID for that. Maybe another type of personality would have said, you know, we'll figure it out. We're going to move to Santa Barbara because it's the best place to raise kids. Um, but for us, we were we were happy and things were clicking along where we were. And it took a global pandemic to be like, well, no, maybe we really could do this. Like maybe maybe it is possible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the 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 pandemic completely shifted our way of thinking about just about everything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that kind Great. of didn't seem doable, like working from home or or not going out to do this and doing that, all of a sudden it's like, oh no, those things are possible and that right. is an option. And it takes something like a pandemic to close State Street down, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, enable this kind of like thoroughfare and walkway and kind of, um, you know, that whole scene. And so, yeah, no, it's definitely kind of a way to see opportunity in something yeah. like this. I think you, just to add one more thing to that, I think you see a lot of people, so I'm 40, I turned 40 this year. Um, and I think you see a lot of people thinking about ways to be closer to different generations, to have grandparents closer to grandkids. And that's something that, you know, as a society, we've moved farther and farther away from that model over time. Um, but COVID affecting our older generations the way it does, I think has made people really rethink the way that they want to have those multi-generational relationships. And I think for us and my parents, thankfully are in very good health. Um, and they're on the, the younger end of the older set, shall we say, but um, we really thought hard about like, 
if the recommendations are going to be not to combine households or to do large family gatherings indoors for a while, um, the benefits to our kids of at least being able to sit outside on the patio and continue to build those grandparent relationships or go golfing or go on a beach walk with the grandparents that even though we were only two and a half hours away, that would have been harder to do because every visit required being in the same home, sharing, you know, indoor dinners together. And I've been really thankful we've been able to move in and out of bubble status with my family, depending on um, like what, what other risks everyone has been exposed to and depending on like a whole bunch of factors, but we can still see them still be together. And I don't think we're the only family who's made big moves for that very reason. And and then if an, if someone in the family does get sick, what happens who, you know, who's providing childcare, there's all of these, there's all of these factors now that, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I, I don't think this, this was not ever going to be like a three month thing that, and then it's over. Um, right. so, right. so yeah, we feel very lucky. Yeah. These considerations and pandemic precautions are really a lot to always be thinking about. You have a huge online community, which must be so, uh, great to still have that connection during yeah. this time. Um, how are you going about building uh, community in Santa Barbara now that you've moved here with all of these <laughs> precautions in place? It, Yes. Okay. So that's a really good point. And yeah, because of my work and also because I've just moved a lot and I think my age, my age people are pretty comfortable with social media, but we also, you know, remember what it's like to have real friends in the real world. So I kind of straddle both generations. Um, So yeah, I do have a ton of good friends around the country and I have the community I've built through my work, but um, it was kind of a good question moving here of like, how are we going to meet actual people in a pandemic. Um, and my kids, you know, my kids need to have real friends. They are not ready for social media and texting yet for the most part. Um, so how have we done it? We have been aggressively friendly neighbors without getting more than <laughs> less than six feet away. Nice. Um, we live nice. on a street where a lot of people walk their dogs and we'll spend time out front and we'll wave and we'll say hello. And they'll be like, Oh my gosh, are you the new people? And we say, yes. And so we've just been like, really um, tried to be really friendly and available for at least those friendly faces. They may never become good friends, but for people to, that's just a very, it's a way to feel rooted. I think in your community is to know your neighbors and be able to wave hello. And um, there was a, there's been a bear recently in Montecito. I'm sure you guys have heard about it. It's the talk of the town, but the bear who's been raiding chicken coops landed us on this wonderful email group of like 28 houses around us. Um, and just to put names with the faces of the people we've seen walking dogs. So I think that's number one is just kind of showing up in our neighborhood as the new family and as willing to, you know, Hey, let's exchange numbers. If you ever need anything, we're here. And all of that can happen from six feet apart. And, and we're always really transparent about our, you know, like how we take COVID precautions for our family and it doesn't have to be what you do, but here's what we do. And, um, through that kind of approach, we've, we've met some other families. We've had backyard hangouts. Um, my kids are in school now and they are starting to make friends. It's, it's amazing. I feel really pleasantly surprised at how they've been able to make friends on zoom or with a mask. Um, but maybe because our expectations were, were kind of low <laughs> for how we would make those connections. And then I guess, Kim, you probably, your question probably was more about like me and my personal network. And I think that's, I think that's interesting. Um, I ran into someone I went to elementary school with at the store the other day. Like there's crazy things that happen like that, that 
that make me feel like it will be easier in a way. Cause I, as long as it's been, it's been 22, 23 years since I've lived here. Um, there are still people who are here. There are familiar faces, um, that you see in the street. Um, and then, you know, I think the, the final, the final level of that will be kind of my own personal friendships, you know, the other moms in the community and going, going out for a glass of wine or a cup of coffee. And I think that's going to take a while, but I guess I feel optimistic and I, for the interim, I feel really good about just the casual acquaintances and the kind of um, baby roots we've set down in the community. That's so exciting for your kids that they have buddies already. I know. I love that. <laughs> it's very so sweet. Important. And I feel, I feel so, I've sent a couple of emails to other moms that I don't know just to say, I just want to thank you because your kid's been really welcoming to my kid at school. And, you know, I would want to know that if I, if, if my kid was being nice to a new kid, I would absolutely want to know that. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's yet like another example of how young people are so adaptable to situations, right? I mean, they just yeah. seem to kind of like, I, I, I sometimes think, oh, wow, you know, like they're not going to be able to experience what life was like before kind of pandemic or before, you know, um, not being able to stand, you know, within six feet of each other for like really young kids. And at the same time, I mean, I know as, as you've talked about on your podcast, there are repercussions of that. But if it's all you know, then it's something that yeah. you just kind of acclimate to, I guess, or just kind of get used to. Um, yeah. One of the things that I loved about growing up in Santa Barbara um, I grew up in Santa Barbara. I went to school, um, at Peabody School in the 80s, and then Santa Barbara Junior High and Santa Barbara High School. I graduated in 92 from Santa Barbara High School. So I had this experience where I felt like where I grew up, I was completely free to just kind of roam. As long as I had my bike, I was that was kind of my sense of freedom, right? Those were like my wings. Mm -hmm. There were no cell phones, and there was no way to kind of communicate with my parents. And it was very, I don't know, I just felt like I just had a lot of opportunity just to kind of move around and, and do my own thing. And by the time I was raising my daughter, it was, there weren't like kids on the street playing mm -hmm. football or baseball or wiffle ball, or just like jump roping or racing down the street, or it wasn't really that kind of street camaraderie. And I lived on the Mesa, you know, which is a mm -hmm. really kind of a nice yeah. neighborhood. And there was a lot of kids around, but they were just more inside. And I just kind of wonder, like, since you are so close to where you grew up, yeah. And a lot of the houses are the same and a lot of the mm -hmm. kind of the, the trees are the same. I mean, mm -hmm. a little bit older. How does that feel for you to have a different experience watching your kids grow up in an environment that's maybe very different than your own experience growing up there? Yeah, it is. And I think that's something that you notice that's happened all over the country, not just in Santa Barbara. Um, I, I would say that for me, it's always been a huge priority to get my kids out and playing outside and also comfortable moving around in their community. We, we really tried when we were in Orange County, I mean, we really tried to prioritize that neighborhood culture and that outdoor play, but it takes work now where, like you said, it yes. used to just be the default. Now it has to be like a parenting choice that you make right. <laughs> instead of just the default. And I think there's a whole bunch of cultural reasons for that, that we don't have time to go into, but yeah, I mean, my um, parents were completely disengaged with my life. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky them. <laughs> um, Lucky for me. <laughs> you know, I think, I think, yeah. So number one, I think it's been a challenge, but one that I have tried to make into a conscious choice. Yes. Um, I would love for the next 
phase of my kids' independence to include things like riding their bike to a store. That's what I remember. Yeah. Um, even more than just the biking and the playing ball outside, what I remember as a kid is walking into the market or the pharmacy on the way home from school and buying myself a candy bar. Yes. I remember my parents had like a little account at the market, at the little <laughs> market, so I didn't even need money. I just would on like, and it was like an account number. It was like very old school. Um, and so that is something that I think, um, I don't know that kids get that nowadays because they've all got their phones to coordinate their pickups. And we just kind of like wandered around till we found a payphone and then called home. So I think with the ages, my kids are, um, I'm still hopeful that they'll have some of that. And I think Santa Barbara is not a bad not a bad place to cultivate some of those experiences. Um, I love that we have, we have some of the benefits of a larger city. We've got neighborhoods, we've got neighborhood markets, we've got more downtown areas, we've got public transportation. Um, I remember taking the public transportation, the bus um, from Montecito to McDonald's on Milpas and practicing with a friend so that we could get comfortable with public transportation and we were 12 that's not I mean we were that's I don't young. know I, I don't feel yeah. like that's I don't feel like it's too young and it's not too old it's not too old either I mean we were little and we were young we were a young 12 and so I think I guess to answer your question I'm glad that my kids are growing up in a place where I think a lot of that is still possible but I think it will take very intentional choices on my part. And we do live now in a more remote part of town, which is great for nature, but a little less great for like, you know, walking down to the market to get M&Ms like I used to do. Right. So, um, right. yeah, I love it. I think of it as a challenge, I guess. Like anytime I see those, those kind of cultural trends that I wish were not moving the way that they are, I just have to up my game a little bit, I guess is how I see it. Yeah. And having trust in our kids that they can be independent and want to be independent. <laughs> like I think right now during the pandemic, it's so, it feels so weird to think of them going off and doing something on their own because we're right. together so much. Well, yeah, you're right. And I mean, I know we've said that kids are resilient and they're adaptable, but I have real concern for like like the 10 to 13 year olds right now who, who are going to miss on a year, a year and a half of flexing those independence muscles. Mm, um, you know, yes. my daughter's 12 and a half and when I was 12 and a half, I was getting dropped off at Paseo Nuevo was brand new. I'm a little younger than you, Jace, but I went to all the same schools and Paseo Nuevo was brand new in the remember, early days, yeah. if you remember. And I oh, remember yeah. getting dropped off at 12, 11 and a half, 12, 12 and a half with friends and just shopping or walking around till we were done and calling on a payphone and getting picked up. And we were really well behaved and, and our parents, you know, they were, they were taking basic precautions, but my 12 and a half year old has not had that kind of opportunity, mostly, be well, because we moved and I <laughs> took her away from all her friends, but also because of COVID. Um, so I do, I do think we're going to, we're going to end up with some young teenagers who perhaps need to catch up with some of those skills. It's not going to be irreparable, but it's going to be something that we have to watch. And I think, Kim, you have a fourth grader and I have a fifth grader. Like those are, again, ages where they would be starting to flex those independence muscles. And we're going to have to find ways to make that happen safely because some of the natural ways have been taken away. Yeah. And I'm just hopeful that they come back sooner yeah. than later. <laughs> oh, speaking of your, uh, what, did you say 11 and a half, 12 year old? I have a the, 12 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. 12 and a half. The, your kid literate podcast that you yeah. do with her. I listened to it. I was just blown away by how charming and just your conversation with her was so incredible to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about raising readers and yeah. how that's been? 
Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. And I, I told you privately, Kim, I think I should have been a librarian. Like, I think that was my actual calling because I'm like super type A and love to organize and categorize things. But then I also love books and literature and raising readers. And so that's, you know, I come by it naturally. I was an English major. I was a literature major. Um, and books have just been a huge part of my cult- family culture that we've brought into our home as a family. And I think um, rather than like, you know, reading every day with your kid or reading 20 minutes a night or making reading kind of a, like a checklist obligation, we've just really tried to make books just an integrated part of our traditions and our cultures, you know, things like seasonal books, getting them out with, when you get out the holiday decorations or the holiday recipes, we get out our books and um, having books in every room, I think has always been like a little basket or a little shelf in almost every room. Um, really having, I take a lot of pride in, again, you're going to laugh because I really should have been a librarian. <laughs> I take a lot of pride in curating and organizing the books we have in our home. Like I think about all the time, like what, what's next for this age of reader and how can I help them, you know, how can I present the books in a way that's not pushy and it's not like mom's going to make me read this 20 minutes a night, but just um, make sure there's an accessible shelf starting when they're one and they're, and they want board books. And um, I remember my mom sometimes giving us books as a gift when we didn't expect a gift, like it wasn't a holiday, but looking back, that's so sneaky, right? What a great every idea. Kid, Love every kid loves to get a present wrapped yes. up with a bow, but really it was just something she wanted us to be doing anyway. So every inch of the reading experience, I've tried to just make a very normal part of our everyday family cultural. So visits to the library. And, you know, I always joke that like, if my kid says that they want to read a book, like they've heard about it at school or they found one in the class library, I really try to drop everything and put it on our library reserve list. Or if I need to order it, if we're going to buy it for some reason to do that right away. So I, I will, I will indulge book requests in a different way than I might indulge snack requests or movie requests. Um, I love it. So yeah, it's obviously for me, it's a natural passion. So it comes relatively easily, but it's also something, um, that I think the kids have just kind of, um, grown up so surrounded by that. It feels normal to them to have a stack of books on their nightstand. And, um, I don't, I don't ever push reading on my kids and I, I don't get too prescriptive with what I, what I wish they would read. And so they'll go through, they'll go through phases where they're, um, I have one child who will purposely read books way below their reading level. I don't care. Like I know, I know what they can read and what, what probably would challenge them. And I also trust in our, in our schools and our teachers to be providing those kinds of literature experiences. I don't need to like hammer that home at, you know, at home. And then finally, and this is like a tip you'll see on like every blog about this, but if kids don't ever see you reading as a parent, they really will think that reading is just like a thing you do for homework or a thing your teacher says you have to do every night. So totally. as adults, if you, if you want kids to love reading, you, you kind of have to show that you read yourself. And I, I prefer to read physical books. Um, partly because kids, when you're looking at a screen, kids don't know if you're looking up a recipe or if you're working or if you're on Facebook or if you're on Amazon. Um, and so even if you really are reading, 
you know, the great American novel on Kindle, there's something, um, there's a message, an unspoken message that gets sent out when you sit down on the couch with a book and, and kids pick up on that over time. So I don't, I have no problem with electronic books. I mean, I think it's, it's a great option, but I do try to let my kids see that I have a physical book on my nightstand. And, and when I wake up in the morning early that I'm reading, that's what I'm doing for my own pleasure. Wow. You definitely 100% kind of are in line with the librarian's kind of point of view I mean, in terms of reading. Did you guys that's just perfect. Make like me that an was honorary librarian. Yeah, like that right was, now on this podcast, I feel we're like cut the this. power must be vested in you to do that. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna cut what you just said and make that into our commercial. That was so <laughs> kind of well said. It was perfect. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that all 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 of us that work in libraries, you know, we kind of get into it because we love you know books. That's kind of where, well, most of us. And then you realize that what you really love is kind of sharing the books you love with other people, right? And that's kind of what yeah. what makes working in a, in a library special is being able to turn people on to new books uh, that you yourself are excited about or you think they might be passionate about. Yeah. Um, and and for some reason, we at the library have a hard time kind of selling that. I mean, I don't think I could have ever said what you just said as eloquently as you did. But in terms of, you know, kind of what we would love to see, you know, parents kind of modeling for their families is kind of that reading culture. Um, and, you so. know, I think a lot of adults have some embarrassment or shame that they're they're not great readers. And unfortunately, I think that comes from what we internalize as kids. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I grew and I, who's my oldest, hosted a mother daughter book exchange. We were going to do a mother-daughter book club, but I really didn't want to put pressure on anybody to, I, like, I really don't like assigning reading or telling people they have to read something. And book clubs kind of carry that, like, oh, I got to read my book club book. And it this was like in May when the school year is wrapping up, it's already so busy. So we did more like a white elephant book exchange where the girl, the kids all brought a book to exchange and the moms just came to hang out. But I made everybody go around the circle when we kind of all gathered and I had the moms talk about what they remembered about reading as a kid. Um, and I tried to really make it okay that not everybody, not everybody loved books growing up that I, I think sometimes we like almost put reading on a pedestal to a degree that people don't feel like they qualify as a reader. That's and true. So, so I think sometimes there's this a little bit of, um, it's not intentional, but people like the three of us get so excited about libraries and reading and literature um, that people can, I think, sometimes feel left out. And if you had, if reading was a struggle as a kid or you never fell in love with it because it just wasn't your your chosen pastime, then I think we become parents and we were told by the pediatrician and the developmental experts that reading aloud is so important. And there's just kind of a little bit of, built up resistance that might come from feeling like I, I'm not a good enough reader myself to pass this along to my kids or, or you do the other thing where you put a ton of pressure on your kid because, because you weren't a good reader. So you want to make them into a good reader. So I guess my wish, my wish for parents is that they just, they show up like come as you are with whatever your um, relationship to books and reading is um, and, and maybe like treat it a little more lightly that it's not something it's not so binary. It's not that you're going to either create a reader out of your kid or they're never going to read, but we all kind of ebb and flow. I'm a, I'm a lover of books. And I went through seriously, probably a decade where I didn't read for pleasure because I had tiny kids and I, I just, that wasn't what I did for relaxation. And now lo and behold, it is again. And I, and so I don't even know where I was going with that, but I, I do think sometimes, um, 
like you were saying, the challenge in getting the message across to parents may come down to parents feeling like they somehow don't qualify as a reader enough to pass it along to their kids, or there's some kind of, um, you know, like imposter syndrome there a little bit. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times parents will want their kids to read things based on what they think is good for them. But when kids mm. are like set loose and able to choose for themselves, they end up having such a more magical experience and they end mm -hmm. up enjoying it so much more. Yeah. So I feel like I kind of caught some of that in your conversation mm -hmm. with daughter in Kid Literate. Oh, really good. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you can good. just kind of do it the old fashioned way and just not have a TV, no technology and just have books <laughs> and records in your house and just see what happens. You could. <laughs> Because <laughs> I love TV. Yeah, TV TV has actually gotten so much better than when I was a kid. So I I, I watch a lot more TV now than I ever have in my life. So yeah. so yeah, I'm not I'm not knocking TV, especially not now during <laughs> this year. It's an essential service. I mean, Indeed it, it, it falls under essential. Right. <laughs> I guess one question I have is for Sarah. Sarah, what were you really hoping for that your kids would experience by moving back to Santa Barbara? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'll say two things. One, the obvious is, is the grandparent relationship that we kind of touched on earlier in the episode. And that just continues to like, I'm just kind of still pinching myself that they, that they get grandparents in the same town and all that that will mean in the future. Um, but another thing we touched on really briefly that's specific to Santa Barbara is I think Santa Barbara combines um, some of the culture and density in parts of a, of a larger city. My kids have lived in pretty traditional suburbs, um, the Phoenix suburb, suburban Phoenix area, and then um, suburban Orange County. And there's a lot of benefits to communities like that. So this is not, not anything bad about those. But I think um, I love that there's a bit more culture in Santa Barbara. We're a university town. Um, obviously, we have the beautiful nature we've touched on. But at least to me, it feels right now like there are more independently owned businesses. There's a bit more um, diversity and culture in our art scene and um, things like the thriving farmers markets. And um, I have, I find that it's easier to identify as a local in Santa Barbara than either of the last two places I've lived. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I hope our independent businesses survive this and I'm trying my hardest to support them through the pandemic. But yeah, totally. that is something um, growing up in a city that feels like a city. And I, I, I'm, I'm not doing a very good job explaining it, but Santa Barbara feels more like the big cities I've lived in than the suburbs I've lived in. And that's something that I think has like a whole, a whole host of benefits for the kids post COVID, um, attending plays and musicals and, and, you know, being part of solstice parades and like, just, just the richness of that kind of stuff here feels different than other places I've lived. And I'm super excited for my kids to have that, um, that feeling of being a local. Oh, I know we talked about, you don't appreciate it necessarily when you're a teenager, but looking back now, um, I think this is a very special place for that reason. Like it marries the culture of a bigger city with the charm of a small town. And then you add the perfect weather and here we are. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, you will always carry, I mean, I will always carry kind of Santa Barbara in my heart in that way that it'll always feel like I'm a local in this town, no matter how much it's changed. And it's mm -hmm. changed a lot. 
Um, but I, I totally get that. And I think it's because, well, part of it, I think is, is because it's, it's a really magical place. I mean, you know, the vision that was, that's been kind of, that has kind of driven kind of how Santa Barbara has developed and been built over the years and, and not overdeveloped, um, and kind of the neighborhoods and all of the, I mean, I, I do believe this in a sense that like the zoning regulations and all of these things that kind of keep things the way that they are, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. Um, and, and that identity that we talk about kind of from the outside perspective is something that is kind of grown and cultivated on the inside as yeah. well. So I, I totally think you're right. It's, it's very special in that way. I mean, maybe you, maybe people know that who've lived the, the, here their whole lives, but I think for me, I don't think I would have been able to identify that even as a young adult. Um, I mean, there's some really convenient things about living in a suburban sprawl where you have five drive through Starbucks within five minutes. As I'm not exaggerating. I once did have five different wow. drive through Starbucks wow. within five minutes and three different targets within Ooh. seven <laughs> and big ones with big parking lots and big shopping carts. So I, I can tell you there are some things that are really convenient that I have given up in moving to this little town little city, big town, little city. But yeah, I agree with you, Jason. I wonder if it's, um, I wonder if that's harder to, I don't wonder if it's an age thing. Like I'm 40 now and I've lived in a bunch of places or if it's a going away and coming back thing. But I, I absolutely can't wait for my kids to grow up with, with that Santa Barbara-ness. Yeah. 100%. It's very special. I mean, one of the things that I was talking about with a fellow uh, librarian was how Twitter has kind of shaped the way that we interact with, in this case, we were talking about authors, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, before something like Twitter or social media in general, it was kind of like, you know, you got to interact with your author by an interview that you might have read that they did, right, right. or maybe letters or biography or autobiography. But, you know, now we kind of get to hear some of our author's thoughts kind of, you know, being tweeted out in the in the universe. And so right. and how that really shapes the relationship between the reader and the author. And thinking along those lines and kind of talking about parenting, I'm kind of, I think I did kind of ask this question in the beginning, so we can skip this, but I, I, I just kind of wanted to know, like, how has that kind of engagement and interaction with your listeners changed your perspective on the content of your show? or mm-hmm. how you see things, you know? I mean, I obviously the more kind of like feedback you get about parenting, the more kind of your vision grows and, and diversifies. But I'm just kind of wondering like, like is there that relationship now that didn't exist before because you are so probably a lot more connected with your, with the people that sub- subscribe to your show than having it kind of maybe be more of like a one-way street, you know, like, like you write a book about parenting and that's kind of all you, yeah. you know, you put right. that out, but there's not a lot coming in. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting with podcasting specifically because, um, I was around for the heyday of the mommy blogs as, uh, as I mentioned <laughs> early in the show, um, and parenting culture online can get very nasty, just like politics, culture and anything else that's divisive. Um, and so I've been a parent for 12 and a half years and the internet has had its various platforms, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, um, I've seen the way that toxicity in parenting conversations just jumps platforms, right? It's, it was in blog comments in 2008, 9, 10. It was in the comment sections on blogs and they would get incredibly nasty and personal and judgmental. And, um, it was really hard for content creators, bloggers and authors, um, to 
kind of maintain peace and order in the comment sections. And and before that, Megan will tell you, Megan will tell you before that it was forums. So forums were before my day, but people would, we'd get nasty and toxic in forums. Then it was blog comment sections. And then later it was Facebook. Um, something that was really interesting to us about podcasting and both Megan and I had background in, in writing and blogging um, before we podcasted. And, and when you listen to a podcast, two different things are happening. One, just by virtue of the fact that it's a human's voice in your ear, there's a little bit more nuance and a little bit more um, personal connection than reading words on a screen. Um, and if Megan and I are talking about a sensitive or a nuanced issue, we have the opportunity. I mean, it's called the mom hour. We have a long, it's a long form show. It's an hour long. So if we feel like we need to explain our thinking or clarify something we said earlier, we can do that. Um, and right. so first of all, you get a more, um, the three dimensional, um, I think understanding of the content creator than maybe someone who fired off a quick tweet or a Facebook post or a blog post. But the right. other thing, and this is what we sort of happened into happily, is that you have to work really hard to go yell at somebody whose podcast you disagreed with. So if someone listened to our show and really <laughs> disagreed with us, they have to find our email address and send us an email, which Every once in a while they do. They could go on Apple and leave a nasty review and every once in a while they will. But um, it's so much harder. The barrier to entry to find <laughs> us and talk back to us is actually just logistically difficult, Interesting. which as a, as a creator um, is a great place to be, right? Because if someone really wants to, to take up a conversation with us, they, they can find us on social and they can leave a comment there, but it's not as immediate as firing off a comment on a Facebook thread. Um, right. So, so that's been something interesting with podcasting. Um, in terms of having access, I do think people with podcasting, people feel like they know us. They, because, mm -hmm. because we're in the, our voices are in their ears. They really feel like they know us and we're not incredibly active on, we're, we're medium active on social. We have a social media presence, but the podcast is our full-time jobs and we don't, we don't currently, um, you know, employ anybody for social. So it, it kind of takes a back seat. Um, so it has been interesting to see what that, what you're talking about with access to authors. And I feel the same way about, you know, actors and politicians. And I, I love getting that more, um, more less, less diluted access to content creators through social media. But I almost think that podcasting is still a step removed because the talking back to us only happens in their car. They, they yell at the radio in their car when they're driving, listening to us, but you have to work pretty hard to actually, to actually find us. So it's interesting. Right. I love that. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I just have two kind of, uh, kind of traditional questions that we ask at the very end of the podcast. Sure. If you're from Santa Barbara or you live here for a while, you kind of get really protective protective about your kind of hidden gems, like places you like to go, you know, I'll go hiking somewhere or, or go to some beach somewhere. And my friend will say, don't ever post this on Instagram or anything. I want, you know, I want to kind of keep it, you know, I don't want to going viral. Do you have any hidden gems, um, uh, in Santa Barbara that you are willing to share, uh, with our audience that you think is, you know, is Place that's special? Sure. Well, the first one that came to mind, I, I happened to show a new friend of mine who's new to really new to town, like not returning like me. And this probably does not qualify as a hidden gem, but she didn't know about it. And somebody else I talked to didn't know about it. And that is the 
way that you can walk from Coast Village Road under the freeway and pop out at Butterfly Beach, which yes. is right under the under the railroad tracks at Hermosillo Drive. There's like a gas station car wash there. And um, you just can walk right under the freeway. And I did it all the time as a kid because my dance studio was at the Music Academy, which is on the beach side of the railroad tracks. And we could walk between the Music Academy area, which is that channel drive up above Butterfly Beach, um, which that also is a hidden gem, that bike path and walking path that connects um, Butterfly Beach to channel drive to over by the cemetery. Um, is a really cool walking area. Um, but I felt like such a local just knowing that we could be on Coast Village Road and be at the beach 30 seconds later. Because if you're a dry, if you only know from driving, you'd have to go all the way around. So that's the first one that came to mind, a little little local tip. Love it. Love that. And kind of the last question is, you know, what what books are by your bedside or what's kind of currently, you know, um, exciting in your Netflix queue or Hulu yeah. queue? Or... Yes. Yeah, so many things. So many things. No, I'll keep it short. Uh, the book on my nightstand is The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. That is the fiction that I am reading right now. I actually read more nonfiction than fiction, but I, I've really tried the last couple of years to read novels. And I always like them when I do. I just don't. I'm, I'm not as drawn to them. Um, and then I feel like we've watched a bunch of great stuff recently. The um, documentary uh, about Pete Souza, who was the official White House photographer under President Obama. It's called The Way I See It. And it aired um, on MSNBC a couple nights. And then I believe what they're going to do is make it available for a one-time purchase. So you guys might be able to link up in your show notes how to watch it, but it's called the way I see it. But, um, and it's a documentary about Pete Souza. That was fantastic recently. And then my husband and I are rewatching Mad Men from the very beginning. And he would say it's our third time rewatching it, but I feel like I had a newborn in one of those times and it doesn't count. <laughs> so I'm actually a huge fan of rewatching like, epically wonderful television series because I I kind of forget them like I I remember the feeling of them but I will I'll totally forget the plot twists and turns so um I don't reread books very often but I will happily rewatch a really well-made tv series so we are um about to start season three of a full rewatch of Mad Men wow those are fantastic Impressive. recommendations <laughs> yeah I mean I could just I could just come back and just talk about tv if you want it's my <laughs> tv and organizing books uh, yeah do you rain Rainbow-fi? I've done rainbow. When we were selling our house in Orange County, I did rainbow with the picture books, mostly because I wanted my seven-year-old to have a job that she could actually help with, so she did it. But normally, <laughs> I don't. We have these built-in shelves in our new house, and it was so much fun organizing and setting Ooh. them up. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story with us on Cover to Cover. Um, it's been such a joy talking with you, and um, I definitely think that we would love to have you back as a guest at some point, and we can talk more about the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> or not the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> it would be wonderful to kind of stray away from that, actually. But um but uh, all things reading um, and Santa Barbara and parenting. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. So thank you very much for being our guest. Well, thank you guys. I had so much fun. So I'll be back anytime. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. This wraps up another episode of Cover to Cover. We want to thank Eric Mendez, our sound producer and editor, the Santa Barbara Public Library, and all of you for listening. Everyone's got a story to tell and we want to hear yours. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, shoot us an email at libraryadmin at santabarbaraca.gov.